Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure to welcome Franz Johansson to our event today. I think it's going to be fantastic. I have been reading and following his work for some time, so I think you're going to find it really fascinating. He's an author, entrepreneur, and the CEO of the Medici Group. Franz has inspired readers and audiences worldwide with his ideas on leadership and success, innovation, and more importantly, diversity. Innovation legend Clay Christensen cited Franz's debut book, The Medici Effect, as one of the most insightful books on managing innovation that I've ever read. What a quote. Can't imagine what that would feel like to have him say that about a book I've written. His follow-up, The Click Moment, has been charged with destroying the 10,000-hour rule. In his role as thought leader and CEO of the Medici Group, Franz has advised executive leadership in Fortune 500 companies, sits on the board of the New York Hall of Science, and I'm super excited he's now working on his third book, which I'm excited to talk about. Welcome, Franz. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be talking to you. Well, I'd like to start this off with something I call bullish and bearish, which hopefully isn't too painful. I think everyone has enjoyed it so far. It's just a way to sort of loosen up the guests. And and I know my listeners really, really find it fun because we do kind of a couple serious ones and then one fun one. So I'm going to start out with the serious ones and uh, let's hear what you think between bullish and bearish. So the first one, oh, are you ready? Ready, friends? I am ready. Right. I'm ready. All right. All right. So yeah. Yeah. machine learning and AI will accelerate world-changing insights? Um, yeah, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably bullish on that. And we'll dig into that because I know that world-changing yeah. insights is big for you. So, so hold that thought. The next one is diverse teams are better at innovation. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, I sort of I have to give the walk into the obvious for you. <laughs> so I'm going to take that as a bullish. Very okay. Very All right. Good. Yes. Far All right. more than the first one. Okay. Good. All right. So the third one is the fun one. Robots will be able to fish. <laughs> I think they already do. So yes. <laughs> All right. And so you know, if you wouldn't mind, sort of, why did I pick fishing? What's what was the connection? Well, I, I I enjoy fishing a lot myself, um, and in fact, uh, have well, have done it a lot. I have written about it, uh, and uh, and various articles, um, and consider it a big part of my life, actually. Well, great. I think it's awesome. I think somebody who, you know, I think people, anybody who's listening who's read the Medici Effect or, you know, would be like, really fishing? But I think it's so much about uh, who you are, which I think we're going to dig right into. Um, you know, you've been called sort of the godfather of corporate diversity and inclusion efforts. And, and I think a lot of this happened because you started talking about it before anyone, it became kind of part of the nomenclature back in 2000. Uh, maybe you can sort of share how that how that happened and transpired. I mean, this, it's it's a very interesting story because um, when I when I wrote the Medici Effect, and yes, I I, I really uh, enjoyed that quote by Clay. It really helped uh, get the book noticed, um, along with 
what then followed. And, and, and here's what happened. So that book was about, is about innovation. It's about innovation when you bring together concepts, perspectives, ideas, and people from different backgrounds, from different industries and fields, from different cultures, people with different perspectives. And so that was the setup of that book. And, and I originally thought it was going to be a, a uh, you know, scientists are going to go nuts over this. You talk about cross-disciplinary science. There's a lot of interest in that. And there was some interest there. But the, the fact is that the first group that really dug into it were uh, chief diversity officers, which was a, in, a title and that started appearing roughly when this book came out. It, had, it came from a few years prior to, but they were getting into their own at that point. And, um, and the reason they were interested was because what the book actually did was it explained why diversity drives innovation. And it was giving a pathway, showed how you could use diversity and inclusion to drive innovation. And I hadn't really expected this. It was, in, it was actually my wife who made the connection into this community because she was doing diversity at J.P. Morgan Chase at the time. And she realized that when everybody's asking for the business case for it, actually what they're talking about, what they want, is what I had written in the book. And that became sort of the, the first group of people that that really got into got into this message and and then what they would do is they would basically have me talk to the executive leadership so the ceo the 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 executive leadership team and they in turn would see this message as well uh and begin to try to understand how can they use diversity broadly defined what it has to do across departments or divisions what has to do across functions or or what has to do with gender or, or, or ethnicities or, or, or countries to drive innovation. And that was a new perspective. That was a new idea. And since then, um, I believe that the work that I've done and that we've done here at the Medici Group, my company, has really been uh, leading the charge on this. Well, so let me start because I think level setting, I've had a number of people on talk about innovation specifically. So I'd love to hear your sort of definition of innovation as it relates to your work. Yeah, I, and there's a lot of them uh, right, out there, right. <laughs> and and there's an academic definition um, which really has to do that. There, there's something new and is a new and relevant idea that has been that's been executed, and I think it gets it gets to the heart of it. Uh, I I ascribe to that you 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 can take an idea that may have been successful uh, actually in one field or one area if you can find a new use for that idea, then that's, this new use could be innovative. You can take a concept. I opened my book with an example of an architect that takes ideas from termite ecology and how termites build their mounds on the African savanna and incorporates it into uh, a building that is building in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. And be, because he incorporated these design elements, he was able to build this building without using, using any air conditioning. And that basically means that the electric bill now is about 90% lower and the buildings around him. And so here you have an idea, it's in existence, but by looking at it and incorporating it, bringing it into another context, you're, you're now able to innovate. And so um, it, it, it kind of shatters the notion that, that innovations are just brand new ideas. I don't actually ever believe they are. They're really combinations of existing ideas. And I think that leads me to this wonderful quote you have, which is, Bridging the connection between diversity, growth, and innovation is a recipe for thriving businesses, happy people, and goodness in the world. 
I love that quote. Yes, <laughs> I like it too, I, and it's true. Yeah, and, and and I think it it begins on that sort of connection. It's the connection of all those things, and uh, I think that's where the powerful or powerful innovation and new ideas can come from. And even if it is a spin, and so combining ideas between different fields and disciplines, I I think is really key today. In fact, it is it is more important than ever. And and you can so first of all, the way the world is set up is increasingly to to explore these type of connections. So you're seeing connections with people across geographies, across across fields, across industries. In fact, industries are sort of born out at, at, at an increasing clip. And at the same time, you're also seeing convergence ideas across fields that are sort of being used. Whether it, has to, whether it has to do with media, um, or it has to do with how we think about digital, uh, ideas are converging. And what that means is there's a huge opportunity for really anybody who's listening to this to say, how can I take what I know? How can I take my resources, my, my knowledge, my wisdom, my, my relationships, and, and how can I combine that with something else? Because it's easier to do today than ever before. And through those combinations, drive new innovative success. And I think that the big thing in what you've just said is, uh, and people ask all the time uh, to me, you know, hey, what, where do you go? What do you do to sort of stay up on what's happening? And I think people have to be a student of their profession. But I also spend time outside the industry I'm you know, responsible for sort of covering with you know, where I work at Salesforce. And so, you know, ultimately it's, it's taking all these other thought process, whether it's in healthcare or financial services or whether it's in, you know, it yes. doesn't matter. And then geographically, I think, you know, for those people listening that have the, uh, you know, the benefit of traveling outside of the United States um, or coming into the United States, if you're listening from other countries, you know, ultimately it gives you a very different perspective. It is. I think it's very true. And, and in fact, I believe that the entire notion of the value of expertise is changing. I mean, for instance, what does it mean today to say that you're an expert in, let's say, retail? When the fact is that retail is changing at such a furious pace that if you ask five experts on the future of retail, you might get five different answers. I mean, what does it even mean to be an expert then if, if you can't actually um, sort of converge upon what the future holds? And so what is really happening is that people have a huge opportunity to become innovators because they're able to create new concepts, new ideas, and introduce them at a much faster pace. I will say that, unfortunately, there's also uh, sort of forces, if you will, not, not even purposeful forces, that, that try to keep people within certain more narrow fields, right? So if you work in a company, you're, you're driven to be, become an expert. If you're on social, if you're in the social world, particularly online, you're, 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 you're driven to sort of get interesting feeds or stories or, or pings from fields they already said that you're interested in, which, which kind of keeps, slowly narrows your point of views. And so the biggest piece of advice I really have for people is to say, fight that tendency. Uh, the world wants to slot you, wants to wants to pinpoint you, wants to peg you, um, and and if you allow it to, you're decreasing your shot at being innovative, of driving creative new and ideas. I think some people use the 
thought process of I'm going to just be contrarian, right? I'm going to be um, kind of go against the norm just to get recognized as, well, I think differently like that five people you ask for retail and four of them are pretty consistent. They're just saying it slightly differently or using different terms or different time horizons. And then you have one that will, you know, really go out on a limb to try to be a little bit more disruptive in the thinking to just uh, maybe push the envelope further to get people to actually go, hmm, they might not be 100% correct, but if they're even directionally correct, I need to respond. Well, yes. And and what's what I think is fascinating about that is it's quite possible, if not even likely, that all five might be off. So you you have there's a consensus notion. I mean, if you talk about retail, for instance, experiences uh matter more in retail today than they did like five years ago and probably gonna matter more five years from now. And so that may be that might be helpful. But you asked you asked the the first sort of bull bearish question you asked had to do with Kind of AI um, uh, and, and, and deep learning, um, and so here's the thing about that, and why I was a bit um, on the fence about it. Whatever it is that you, what, whatever insight that you can get to that everybody else can get to that is quote unquote obvious is not really all that helpful. Like that's not the thing that's going to set you apart. That's the thing that's going to at best keep you just with everybody else, but but actually, in the end, all it really does is it, it, it prevents you from trying something that is quite different. And so, um, you know, it is necessary to be up to speed. I, I'm, I try to constantly have a sense of what's going on around the world. But if I use it as a guide for how to break through, how to break out of the pack, then I'm probably shooting myself in the foot. And that's why I think that with large data sets, for instance, uh, where you know you, where this notion of AI is going uh, and, and using, um, if you're all if everybody's analyzing it more or less in the same way, you're not really getting much of an advantage. You have to be able to look at that data. Set. Either you need a unique data set that nobody else gets access to, so that's one thing, or you're looking at similar data sets in completely innovative and new ways. You're just gaining completely different type of insights out. Yeah, of it. and I think. You know, you're also a big fan on on applying that uh, sort of a, looking at data sets in a new way, but also marrying that, if you will, or combining that with sort of your gut instinct that you're taking from all these other data points, right? Yes, absolutely. And the reason, again, um, the more I talk quite a bit about the logic trap, uh, which I which I find a lot of people sort of they they. they push themselves into it. And it comes, it comes down to basically that whatever sort of becomes rational and logical, whatever I can sort of arrive at through that is probably the right way to go. And, and that to me is, uh, is a big warning sign because, again, if it's logical, then, well, a lot of folks are going to head in that direction. And so you're automatically erasing your, your, your shot at success. So what else are you supposed to go upon then? And so that becomes the question, well, what is your guiding? And, and I believe that actually leaders in various ways have amassed a, a, a sense, a, a direction that might be a mix. It's a mix of some logic and, and rationality, but it's also a mix of a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, there's strong emotions that get into it. Uh, there's strong intuitions that get into it. And by listening to that, you're 
the combination of those things, you're more likely to arrive at a place that others are not in. And that gives you a shot at actually truly innovating. Yeah. And wouldn't you say that there is also the flip side of that coin that holds people back from innovating and thinking differently when they get caught in the trap of, we've always done it that way, we've right? Yeah. So we're going to keep doing it that way. Or what I think is worse is our competitor who is outperforming us, right? We're just going to try and copy what they do. Or the third being like, we need to, you know, quote unquote, Uberize or Airbnb our business. Like we're just going to apply someone else's business model. So it's this best practices trap. The best practices trap, I think, is is um, it's it's large and it can and it can catch you in uh, in, in in unexpected ways. I mean, so uh, over the years, having gone around, you know, giving a lot of talks on these set of ideas, I. I kept on being asked to go deeper with organizations. So that's enabled me to create the Medici Group. Um, and we sometimes in a conversation, the, the way it opens, right, is how do other companies think about this? How do, how do our competitors think about it? And so the first course of action, right, is that although it might be interesting to have some situational awareness, again, if that's going to be your guide, uh that's not really going to set you up for success. And again, then comes the question, well, what, how should we look? Where should we look for, for the future? And, and, it, and I believe it comes back to these intersections, these intersections between different fields and cultures and industries. That's where you see most of this stuff happening. And the leaders are those that are see, seeking out these intersections first and exploring them and, and, and looking to see how they can make it meaningful. I can take ideas there that they find and bring them to life. Well, so if best practices are a trap that people need to watch out for, I would back that up with then saying, so should the metrics in which they use to either you know score the success or failure of whatever effort it is that they're doing, sort of that quote unquote return on the investment would also need to adjust. It would, of course, yes. That's is a great point, and and uh, return on investment means they actually that you can actually get a uh, um, well. Usually, it's actually used to make decisions for the future, which is kind of strange. Since it's very difficult to know what the return on investment on an innovative idea is going to be. I mean, since nobody really truly knows if this innovative idea is going to work, and so using it as a metric to to select ideas becomes highly flawed. Uh, we, we suggest that you that, that other metrics are used, and then when you look at it in retrospect, it becomes tricky too because it leads you to believe that you can actually f- figure out why this was successful. I, I sometimes tell the story about Angry Birds, which is a game. The reason why is because it's a game that almost everybody has played at one point at least, and it sort of shifted how games were done on the iPad or or the iPod and. Um, and, and, you know, it comes out as a huge success. One of the most downloaded games of all times. And people look at it and go, whoa, we know it was successful. It was uh, at addictive uh, levels. They had cool colors. They, you could kill pigs with burners. <laughs> or the marketing. They started in the Czech Republic, made it number one in the App Store there. Then they leveraged that into making it number one in the UK, App Store there. And then it went number one in the US. And, and so there's all these explanations that are sort of set out to help us understand how they were able to get this incredible 
ROI. But what they all miss is that Angry Birds was Rovio's, which is the company that created it, was Rovio's 52nd game. And you haven't heard of the other 51 games that they made. And so, so I mean, if, if Rovio was unable to actually know exactly what was going to be a hit or not, and, and, and they clearly were not because they actually, it took them 52 tries to do this, and we haven't really heard much of them since either. Uh, then, then what makes you believe, right, that it was their brilliance that got them there? It is something else that's a play when it comes to innovation. Yes, you have to be smart and you have to be ambitious and you have to be aggressive and all these things. But ultimately, what you have to do is, well, you have to try. I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to put something out there and let the world make sense of it. And if it works, I mean, then you can run with it. And I believe really in all the work that I do and all the customers I see, there's sort of two things. One, I think metrics uh, are really hindering um, and one of the biggest inhibitors for innovation uh, because they they tend to then use the same sort of financial lens and and yes. innovation is just moving at too fast of a pace, number one, in my opinion, right? But in number two, the market and customers are very different. So how do the metrics remain similar, right? So that's why I think that best practice gets dangerous if you just, you know, immediately apply it, uh, you know, to an entirely new business model or a new set of customers, because I, I just don't think it translates. I couldn't agree more. I, where I think metrics could be helpful is in how we think about creating um, great environments for um, for innovation. So, for instance, um, instead of looking at uh, if you were successful or not, um, maybe it's more interesting to look at how many times you tried. Um, so I, I'd be curious to know, if somebody says, you know, we're, we're trying to be really innovative here, I want to know, well, okay, how many times have you tried to create something innovative? And if the answer is, well, we tried this one thing, well, you, you got an issue right there. Right, <laughs> that right. thing is a problem. Uh, so, so, there is, so metrics can be used in how to think about creating an innovative environment. I don't think it can be used very successfully anyway in trying to predict any specific uh, idea, any specific initiative, any specific strategy. It's just going to be, it's just very hard to, to use it for forward-looking things. I mean, I, it, of course, it may be useful to, you know, to communicate to investors or to Wall Street or whatever. Like, they, they, they want to have numbers to, 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 to run. But, uh, but in, in terms of guiding your actions, I, and we here believe much more in things like uh, passion to the degree that you can spot that and feel it. Um, discomfort, discomfort is a good thing when you're looking at uh, innovative potential, uh, surprise, are you surprised by, by an outcome, by a result, by a reaction? If you are, it means that it probably wasn't uh, planned for or predicted. And that's a good thing. That's a good indicator. In fact, I, I call surprise a leading indicator of innovation because it means that you've hit upon something that was not available to a logical analysis uh, or to a rational analysis. It was, it, it was the result of something else, something unexpected. And that reveals the true nature of innovation. Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot this a little bit because I think that uh, your story and sort of the fact that uh, you may have a third book coming out um, has everything to do with, I, I like to call it the whisper. 
Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the whisper that will come from the universe or from conversations and all of a sudden you start to hear and feel this common thread and you get compelled to either do something different personally or, you know, go down the path of writing another book. Uh, and I, th I think that I'm going to tie these two together a little bit because I want to hear about, you know, where you are on the, the journey to your third book. But uh, more yeah. importantly, on the innovation front, I, I think people really need to just take a moment, step back, quiet the mind so that some of those sort of internal mm -hmm. messages can come forward about ways in which we can all um, be better corporate citizens and better teammates and better collaborators, but also innovate. Yes. Um, well, I mean, this... <sighs> Um, this idea around listening—it goes back to some a comment you made earlier, right? That the, 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 this this intuition piece. Um, uh, I think it matters a lot because, to the degree that we have a choice in the matter, and I believe we have far more choice than people like to think, we should, I think, do things that we care about, that we are passionate about, that we find exciting. And sometimes one just keeps on running on a particular path that one hasn't even reflected upon those things, at least not deeply. One simply does it because it's the next thing to do. Um, who decided that? Well, uh, that's maybe not so obvious. And so for me, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, that, that often happens with authors and people that sort of go down the thought leadership track as well, well, it's time to have another book out there. Uh, for instance, <laughs> because it's just this kind of rule. Every two to three years, you kind of need to hit the market with something, uh, which is which may be fine. It's just so I I think that could be that 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 could work really well um, if if that sort of flows along with how you're thinking about it. For me, that was never the case. For me, the um, the it, it was always about. I wrote, my, I wrote The Medici Effect because I had to. I didn't really feel I had a choice. It was this, I woke up one morning with an with a inner vision of two light beams intersecting. And actually, I saw this combinatorial math formula in front of me. So these two things combined, and, I, and, and, and it caught me. Like, the image lasted maybe 10 seconds. But it got me onto this notion of the Medici Effect, of bringing together different fields and cultures and disciplines and uh, I had really no choice but to write the book. I just, just like that was the only thing that I could do. Um, and and so when that was done, and it just had much greater ex success than I ever expected. I, I didn't really expect much of it. Uh, everybody started asking, you know, when's the next book? Um, well, first of all, the Magic Effect is still rolling. It's just hitting its twentieth language now in translation this year, uh, <laughs> fourteen years after its release. But everybody wanted to know what the next book was, and. Um, and it was only, you know, six, seven years later that it became clear to me what it was. And so I'm hitting that same moment now where I'm feeling that, that my mind and my experiences and my body is telling me that there's another idea that I need to get out there. I need to, I kind of need to complete the trifecta that I've created with the first two books. There's a third book that needs to be written around it. And that will sort of complete the, the entire chain of thinking that I have around the notion that diversity drives innovation. So that's what that book is going to be about. It's really going to cover all of the experiences I've had. We've worked with over 2,500 teams around the world. And what has, what has been the insight from that, the empirical insight? 
that's really where that book is going. Well, and I also think that, uh, you know, just go, sort of going back to kind of where I get the pleasure to work every day at Salesforce, obviously we have a chief diversity officer, we have a CEO who is very yeah. aligned to this cause. Um, and it and it's a lot uh, a part of our DNA and, and what we stand for as a company. And so I think that the appetite and the willingness to listen to this conversation now has gotten broader than maybe when you did the Medici, you know, what led you to your first book and even your second book? You know, you've been on this journey for almost 20 years now, having this conversation about diversity and innovation. Uh, and I like that you say diversity and inclusion, because I think people get stuck on diversity being male and female and not thinking styles and language and country and, you know, all of the team building and, and all of that being broader. I think they get caught in the fact that it's just a male and female thing and it isn't. Uh, so that that's right. And it's also true that the world is far more um, uh, hungry for these set of ideas. There, there are two huge trends around the world right now. And this is true wherever you look. One is around innovation, US, Europe, Asia, Lat Latam, Africa, like, Everywhere, innovation is a topic. But that is also true, remarkably, for diversity and inclusion. You see, it is a different discussion. The discussion in Europe is different than it is in the U.S. I grew up in Sweden, um, and, uh, and I'm, my parents are still there. I go a lot. We have clients in Sweden. Um, they think about it. They talk about it differently than they do here, but they talk about it. And so you're seeing these two trends rising, and they're rising because they are related. They're connected. It's not incidental. It's not an accident that both of them are rising at the same time. So yes, it's been a long journey, and it feels finally that the world itself is coming around to these set of ideas. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's great because this next generation, we you know we're seeing. Uh, sort of the next generation, the sort of even younger, a little bit younger than the millennials, uh, really start to take action and think differently about this. And so it'll be great to see, like you said, Angry Birds, right, as an example. And if you have ever seen the graph that says, you know, how long did it take companies to get 50 million users, right? And I think Angry Birds was right. like seven days or 10 days, right? <laughs> Where the telephone was like 65 years or something like that, right? right. And so, so you know, it, there, it's like, oh, wow, you guys were so successful so fast. It's like, no, well, you didn't know the other 50 games that failed miserably, right? right. And so was it a timing thing? You know, I think this next generation is going to be innovating and doing some really amazing things, uh, especially in the coding space, in the STEAM space, uh, you know, it's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, because I think arts is important. Yeah. Um, so in, in sort of in wrapping this up, if we were to say, you know, what's next? What, what do you think is next for, let's start with, uh, let's start first with innovation, and then we'll, we'll round it out with diversity. What do you think is next for innovation? Um, I think that um, the, the, the big piece that the companies are trying to solve for, and, I, and I, I'm focusing on this on corporations, the larger corporations are getting, finally, getting the message that they've been saying for years, innovate, innovate or die, whatever. Those are just words. I think that the big next piece here that I'm seeing is that there is a much deeper understanding as to that we really have to. So I think you're going to see uh, more 
uh, aggressive moves from larger corporations to try to figure out what is it that we can do that in any way, even at a fraction of, of, the, of, a, uh, of the amount of what happens in, say, Silicon Valley or other, other areas like that, how can we, what is it that we can emulate? I'm having far more of those discussions um, today than I did, you know, five years ago. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big shift there. And around diversity, huge. I, what has really happened is that, um, is that um, it's, it's quite remarkable. What has what's really happened is that, again, companies, corporations, large and small, are kind of driving this issue in a way that it used to be governments and more public policy that drove it. It used to be that there were laws that said, look, you can't discriminate, you can't do this, you can't do that, and, and, and trying to create through those means a more equitable and, and, and just world. If anything, we're seeing the opposite, right? So there are, in various places, there are laws that are, that are trying to limit uh, whether it's North Carolina laws in the U.S., but you will see this in Europe as well as in Asia. You, you, you will see governments actually trying to, to, to limit the notion of diversity and inclusion. And what is happening? Companies are fighting back. And they're, they're doing it because they know a fundamental truth that hasn't hit politicians yet, which is that they have to innovate or they will die. In order to innovate, they need the best people. And they need, they need those people to work together, to collaborate. And that comes out of diversity, that comes out of inclusion. So the big thing that I think is happening now is that um, you've got, we're going to keep on seeing companies, large and small, pushing this agenda far more than we're going to keep seeing um, governments and, 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 uh, and other entities like that. It's shifted. It's, ups- it's upside down now. It's inverted. And I think it's fantastic. I mean, if nothing else, uh, I can tell you I get asked a lot more now those questions around diversity and inclusion and how it's impacting business. And even when I'm working with clients and, and I hear a team get together and uh, you know we're talking about sort of what does the future look like as it relates to customer experience or sales or marketing or growth or even innovation, uh, you hear them start to parrot what each other says. And I stop the conversation and sort of say, you know, how long has this team been working together? Because you even like I was saying, it's diversity of thought as well is a huge yes, impact absolutely. on that's that status quo. It's the best practice. It's the ROI. It's the TCO. It's the, you know, you get trapped in the same same and you, you get in a rut of not being able to innovate. Yep. I, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's wonderful. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's that this shift is happening. It's wonderful that people are beginning to have different types of dialogues and certainly has kept, kept, kept me busy uh, in, particular this, in particular this year. I mean, uh, next week alone, I'm, I'll be in, I'll, on, on, on Monday I'll be in San Francisco, on Tuesday I'll be in Hartford, and on Wednesday I'll be in Stockholm. And these are all tech-oriented, either companies or conferences, and they're, and they're all talking about diversity and inclusion. Well, that's excellent. Well, I just want to say, Franz, thank you so much for joining me on the What's Next podcast. I hope you found it uh, as fun as I did. And so, and sharing all these great insights with the listeners, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you.
Thank you. It's been fantastic speaking with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And great. And I hope everybody goes out and gets either one of his books. I, I highly recommend the Medici and I look for uh, Medici effect. And I look forward to the third book, which as you get inspired, maybe next week to start putting pen to paper. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Franz. Have a great day. What a great conversation with Franz. It was such a pleasure to speak with him. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I thought his perspective on taking insights from various industries and different geographies uh, and different capabilities from different companies and combining them with, most importantly, your intuition and your gut in order to really change the way your company approaches innovation or how you personally approach innovation is very important. The next thing I'd say I got out of that was the value of expertise is changing. Sort of what is the expertise? What are the things that you bring to the table? We can't be backward looking. We have to make sure we're constantly staying on top of what's happening and what's happening in the future so that we can prepare ourselves for potentially what's next. I think his his perspective on unique data sets and looking at them in completely new, new ways And leaders have this amazing sense of this mix of logic, rationality, and intuition to bring all kinds of new thinking to the organization. I hope you pick up a copy of The Medici Effect, which was a great book. You listen to this podcast and share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to What's Next, and I'll look forward to having you join me again next time. Thanks again, and have a great day.